There you have it. The dulcet tones of the full cast and crew podcast opening theme song. I'm your host, Jason Silo. Thank you for joining me again. It's the summer edition of the podcast, which means it's me alone in a room with my thoughts talking to a microphone about a film that I love. Once we get back to New York City in the post-Labor Day timeframe, I can promise you some additional guests of the sort you become accustomed to. Uh, Today, we are going to tackle a seminal film in the full cast and crew universe, in my mind, in my head, in my filmic appreciation. There's a handful of films that are so totemic, so beloved, so important to me that I've hesitated to do them on the podcast because either the sheer volume of work required to unpack something like, say, Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey, the making of, the the filmic innovation, the spiritual, philosophical underpinnings, Kubrick himself, the performances. I mean, it's just, it's almost too big to undertake. And at some point, perhaps I will. Blade Runner 2049 is another example. Although when I did the original Blade Runner with my good friend Bruce Edwards, I thought we really did justice to something that I thought would be very difficult to wrestle to the ground. So that's kind of opened my eye, my mind a bit to the concept of tackling some of these films. And as I mentioned in last week's episode, I recently had a bout of COVID. And during that time, I was able to deep dive into several things that I just probably wouldn't have had the time to do in everyday life. And one of them was Michael Mann's film, Heat. If you know me, if you've listened to the pod, Heat is a shocker for a, you know, 50-something white guy. Uh, A huge, huge film for me. I love this film. And I've seen it countless, countless times. I could probably recite in order the scenes. I could probably do a good deal of the dialogue. But in rewatching it this time, and it's again, I'm in this moment where kind of like De Palma with Blowout last week, you know, I've seen enough films now and I've, I've learned enough about how films are made over the course of 135, 140 episodes, how many we are, that even films that I know and love so much like Heat are new to me again when I watch them with appreciation for writing, filmmaking, acting, all of the things that have to go right to make a superlative film, to make something great, which Heat undoubtedly is, any way you want to look at it. So I had the time, I rewatched the director's approved cut on Amazon Prime, which looks fantastic. Um, I believe it's a restoration. And I heard Dante Spinotti, the cinematographer of Heat, talk about how, uh, even though he would never say it's possible that a film should be better than it was when it was released, he felt that the restoration the 4K digital restoration allowed the film to actually be better than when it was originally released and projected on film and, and that the blacks and that the different sort of temperatures of, of, of things and the ability to really dial in specific uh, 
height heightened or lower lowered uh, ratios for certain colors in the frame rendered this even even better he thought than it originally was so it's a masterful masterful edition of the film i think it's two hours and 50 minutes long five zero uh but it doesn't feel like it to me so anyway heat i wanted to address off the top i think this might be my own personal life uh, i know that my wife sort of comically views my appreciation for heat and maybe if you're a guy out there listening who's around my age, I'm 53 years old, you may have someone in your life who does the same thing. I think that there's a shorthand that gets bandied about, which says either the films of Michael Mann are all about men's worlds and are exclusive to that, and women don't play a role, or you boys in your big, dumb crime heist films, whatever, um... Watching it again, I actually probably would have agreed at least with the concept of that, even if I didn't, even if I felt it it robbed someone who might feel that way of a truly wonderful cinematic experience. But really watching it again this time, of all the countless times I've seen this film, what I really plugged into was if you are a fan of acting, first and foremost, Heat is an actor's film before it is a crime film before it is about men and the way that they form bonds, before it's about the the criminal life and what it takes to succeed within it, before it's about male obsession, before it's about any of that stuff, the most fundamental thing that Heat is, is a tour de force superlative showcase for casting and acting. And what struck me this time was that up and down the cast, there it's extraordinarily cast with actors, actors, top to bottom, even in the smallest of roles. And there's only one person in the whole movie who doesn't fit that actor, actors, actor category. And we'll talk about that when we get to a more detailed discussion of the cast. So yes, the scenes of crime and male life are superlative, they're intelligent, but also so is Neil and Edie's intro scene in the bookstore. Uh, that's so deftly and emotionally and truthfully handled. So are the scenes between Justine and Vincent. So are the scenes between Natalie Portman's character and Justine and Vincent as the troubled teenage daughter of Justine's. So is Ashley Judd. I mean, Ashley Judd is phenomenal in this in just a handful of scenes. I mean, we'll get into it when we talk about the cast, but as, as much as it's a crime epic, as much as it's an, a, a crime opus, and it is that, it is also first and foremost a character study of the deepest, most intelligent, and unsparing fashion. So what I mean by that is these are not heroes on either side of the law. Everyone in the movie, everyone, is a fully realized character brought to life by actors, actors doing, if not great work, some of their very best work. And we'll talk about the cast in greater detail. But watching it this time, I think the overall emotion I was left with is emotion. You feel sadness. You feel a sense that life is not black and white, that the gray area is what is of interest, that the great middle complication of living and making decisions is what this film is all about. And it happens to be set in the world of 
Los Angeles crime, but it is not about that in that way. Christopher Nolan called Heat stylish without being self-conscious. He said it's timelessly, effortlessly beautiful. I would agree with him. The filmmaking, the cinematography, the editing, the use of music, all of these things. Yes, Michael Mann has a style. He's been accused or praised for being a stylist. Someone whose someone who's films are suffused with a sense of design, a sense of construction. And yeah, okay. Um, it is a stunningly put together piece of work. And that all starts from Michael Mann. I mean, it all starts from one person who wrote a script that's based on things that we'll talk about in his, his actual life and who had at the time in 1994, 1995, the wherewithal to bring to life because of his relationships in the film industry, because of his relationship with the film's producer, he was able to fully realize something that he had a handle on better than anybody else. And that's a moment in time. I mean, a movie like this would not get made today, even with all of these stars in it. Tom Sizemore, who's fantastic in the film, like all of the main protagonists are, he said that the film is about, and that Michael Mann is particularly interested in, the choices that we as people make in split seconds or over time, and how those choices irretrievably alter the path that our lives then take. And there are many scenes in the film where split-second choices or choices that have built up over time are displayed and the repercussions of those choices are often jarring, such as in the beginning heist of the armored truck where Wayne Grow jumps the gun and shoots a guard he had no business shooting. And then Neil and uh, Chris, De Niro and Val Kilmer, share a nod which says, yes, one guard is dead. This is now a felony murder beef for us all. Uh, there's no reason to leave living witnesses. Go ahead and shoot the remaining guards. That's a choice in a moment that has far-ranging repercussions. Um, there is, I think that th this concept of the choices that we make is best represented by a scene. I'm going to be jumping around a bit, so I apologize. But this is best represented to me by a scene later in the film where the Breeden character is who is brilliantly, movingly, human, humanly played by Dennis Haysbert, is surprised by Neil in the coffee shop diner that he's working at off of parole after getting out of prison. And of course, Bud Court legendarily plays the corrupt, evil, asshole diner manager who explains in no uncertain terms to Breeden, how he's kicking back 25% of his salary, how he's going to mop out the toilets and doesn't give a shit about who he is and the choices that he's made. He's just a number to him. He's just dollars in his wallet. And when Neil shows up because Wayne Grow has caused uh, Trejo to rat out the bank scheme, they need a driver. And Neil recognizes 
Breeden working in the kitchen and this scene then follows, which is which is exactly about what Sizemore said that man is all about. It's about a choice that you make in a split second or in real time. Pick up. Hey, Neil. Hey, what up? What's up, brother? What you doing here? What I'm doing is I'm looking for a driver when they handle scanners and a radio right now, today. Do you remember the drill? Yeah, man, sure. Is it cool? Oh, man, now you know I'm cool. One answer, yes or no, right now. Okay, so the way this scene is constructed is so masterful because, first of all, Dennis Haysbert is just a phenomenal, emotional, truthful actor. And we've seen enough of him and his character prior to this point to know that, yes, he's in this dead-end parole job that he's got to get through to get to whatever other things might be possible in his life. But we also know that he has the love of a good woman who is... Uh, so also brilliantly played in the film. Um, let me find her name. Uh, Kim Staunton plays Lily, Lillian. And she's representative of one of the women who loves these complicated men on either side of the law. And this is where I would say a lot of the criticism that man gets sometimes of being too too much of a man's world, no pun intended, is really misguided because I think the first thing that Michael Mann is always interested in is the truth of a world. And if the truth of a world that's populated by criminals and by relentlessly driven detectives is, is that the women are secondary to the thing they're chasing, the thing that they're pursuing, well, that's what he's going to portray on the screen. He's not going to, he's not going to change the the realistic dynamic of a world that he well knows in order to sort of answer what a critic might say should or shouldn't be represented on screen by a female character. So in this film, you have Lillian, Justine, um, you have uh, Ashley Judd. I mean, you have women who are in the orbit of these characters and they challenge these characters. The only people who challenge these characters to do better to be better, to be balanced in their life, are the female characters uh, who all have their own lives and are portrayed as such. So that's just in that scene and the way it's cut, um, uh, the way the music comes in, that is the decision point. That's the inflection point at which Breeden is going to make what will prove to be the wrong decision for him because he's going to be shot and killed in the robbery. So that's an example of sort of what the film is about. It's also about procedure because any Michael Mann film is always super heavy on very, very realistic procedure. It's one of the things I love most about his movies. For example, in the crime investigation scene, so after you have the uh, armored car robbery at the top and all the cops are crawling over the crime scene, all the people that you see working on the bodies, dusting for fingerprints, processing the uh, explosive used... Uh, processing the crime scene. Those are all actual forensic police officers and police officers and investigators from the Los Angeles and other police departments. And so in using them, in casting real people who really do this work and basically saying to them, 
here's a crime scene, process it, do what you would do. It, it lends those scenes a realism because those people are doing what they would really be doing if they were processing a crime scene. And when Pacino in the Vincent Hanna role says to a, to a woman who is processing the body of one of the guards, when he approaches, he says, get your hand out of that man's pocket, Rachel. And she sort of laughs. Now, she laughs in a way and, and responds to him in a way that's not actorly. Okay, her her inflection is is that of a real person. It's not that of an actor. And there is a difference. And in this case, that adds to an overused word here on the podcast, which starts with V, verisimilitude. The origin of the film, and as I said, Michael Mann is interested in specific worlds and he's interested in the precision and the mechanism and the representation of that world. He's from Chicago. And if you know about Chicago, and he talks extensively about this, you know, Chicago is a city that where, where criminality was a daily part of news coverage. It was something that everyone in neighborhoods knew who the crooks were, who the criminals were. Uh, this was not a separate world. It was a world which often bumped up against and intruded upon and touched your own world, even if you were not a criminal. The worlds of cops and robbers were were very, was a gray area. Uh, and the whole origin of Heat, and also, I would say, two other Michael Mann filmic enterprises, really stems from the fact that he met a guy named Chuck Adamson, who was a Chicago Police Department sergeant from 1958 to 1974. And in talking with Chuck Adamson, who became a consultant to Mann and a, co a screenwriter and uh, worked on other films of this sort. In part of Chuck's career, he had chased a career Chicago criminal named Neil McCauley. And the real Neil McCauley, you can look at his mugshot online. Uh, he certainly doesn't look anything like Robert De Niro. He looks squirrely. He looks uh, highly strung. He looks like he's a rabbit on the run. But Neil McCauley impressed Chuck Adamson with his dil discipline, the intelligence of the schemes that he uh, would try to take down. And Chuck Adamson has a whole story about a time he was staking out a job that they knew. I think it was a supermarket holdup, payroll holdup, that he knew that Neil McCauley and his gang were going to be targeting. And there was uh, a sound that Neil McCauley heard that wasn't right. It wasn't what had, it wasn't a sound he should have heard based on all the hours and hours of reconnaissance that he did on the supermarket. And this scene is mirrored in heat so brilliantly when Hannah gets a line on Macaulay's crew and they're about to take down the metal deposit, the precious metals depository again. And another a brilliant piece of casting. Someone has no lines whatsoever. There's kind of a doofus uh, cop with a huge rifle who is inside this panel truck staking out the precious metals depository. And the cop is sort of drinking a, a little bottle of water and he knocks his gun against the side of the panel truck and Neil McCauley, who is standing outside, hears this. And there's this amazing scene where Vincent Hanna and Neil McCauley basically look at each other through a infrared camera monitor. And McCauley, knowing that it's not right, uh, pulls the whole job, even though, as Kilmer says, I'm almost there. And they walk away from the job. And that's taken from real life. That's taken from Chuck Adamson's experience chasing Neil McCauley. Now, to what degree Chuck Adamson and Neil McCauley's relationship, um, and Chuck Adamson, by the way, 
I believe, gunned down Neil Macaulay in the end. And so the ending of Heat as well is infused with some of this mutual respect that these two supposedly had for each other. Now, it's Chicago, it's it's Hollywood. I don't know to what degree these things are romanticized or are played very close to the vest, but that's where the origin comes from. And Michael Mann had been kind of enticed and entranced by this concept for quite a while. And you can see evidence of this type of thing in uh, three of his filmic efforts. So clearly um, the film Thief with James Caan is one that I always kind of assumed that Heat was sort of a, not a remake, but it covers a lot of the same ground. It has a lot of the same types of characters, and it certainly has cops who blur the line between right and wrong, but way more so. Like the cops in Thief are totally corrupt. Um, don't really have much respect for Frank, the James Conn character, but there's a similar, there are similar things that the cops pull Frank over on the side of the road and suggest they talk, which also happens in Heat. Uh, the one last job before I can escape to this fantasy life with the woman I love. Um, there's a lot of commonalities to it, but it's very different because Thief, which you can hear about in episode 66 of the Full Cast and Crew podcast, is not based on kind of similar source material. It's based on an actual book called The Home Invaders, which is written by the professional burglar who is the basis for the James Caan character in Thief. But in 1989, Michael Mann got his first crack at tackling what would become Heat because he did a TV, what turned into a TV movie. It was supposed to be a pilot called L.A. Takedown, which features Vincent Hanna, it features Edie, it features Wayne Grow, uh, Neil McCauley is called Patrick McLaren, but it covers a lot of the same ground, and I think Mann came to see it basically as a dry run for it. Now, I haven't seen that. I wanted to try and watch it, but I haven't seen that, so I can't speak to whether it's any good or not, but um, it didn't go to series, let's put it that way. So that's kind of the origin. I think Michael Mann had written this screenplay and had shown it to Art Linson, who's a producer of note in Hollywood. And I think Linson really kind of flipped for the concept and thought, oh, you've got to do this. You have to direct this. I think Michael Mann said that he was thinking of actually producing Heat, not directing it. But when Art Linson read the script, he thought, you've got to do this. And they talked about uh, who could be Neil McCauley, who could be Vincent Hanna. Art Linson said, uh, Bob De Niro has got to be Neil McCauley. And he gave the script to De Niro, and the pieces fell into place from there. We'll get into the cast in a bit. Here's a little bit about Art Linson talking about Michael Mann's attitudes uh, towards his characters, which I think is an important part of what we're talking about here. The thing that struck me that was so special about what Michael had achieved there, and I know in his case it's intentional, is he made no judgment about who was good and who was bad. He just let you see what is. And so suddenly you realize that the cop's personal life is as truly fucked up as the robber's personal life. And, and that both of them in as many ways have to deal with the exact same issues and deal them with the same integrity or the same lack of integrity as the other. And so the thing that makes the movie so special is that it's not this one dimensional thing about a chase of the good guy against the bad guy. It's very complicated. You get lost into wh who's on which side. The fact that he was able to write something so special to, un to, to kind of merge the two worlds, like, like without making any judgment that one's better than the other, it just is. That's, I think, the genius of the piece. I mean, can't say any better than that. 
That is absolutely true. And that's why I think it, it elevates beyond just being what I think people can look at it as. In a way, the crime scenes, which are, if not the greatest filmed heist scenes ever in the history of Hollywood, certainly up there in the top three, uh, especially the bank shootout chase, which we're going to talk about in a bit. But all of the major crime scenes, the the uh, armored car, the aborted attempt at the precious metals depository, and the bank robbery are the exemplar of how one could do that with utmost tension, believability, procedural realism, emotional underpinning. That's all like the showy stuff. And if you look at like trailers or you look at, at clips or you look at posters, like it's guys firing guns. And I get how we've all had enough of that in general in life, in American life particularly. But those things, as brilliant as they are, and they are as brilliant as those things have ever been done, that's not really the underpinning of the film. The underpinning of the film is what Art Linson was talking about, and it's what Michael Mann talks about here. Life is not uh, an either-or set of binaries. That on that's something that, that we, we, we compress real life into fiction and make it be that way because it's convenient and and, and, and mechanically symmetrical. Life's not like that. And that's, that's, what, that's what excites me, when the power of a, of a character like Hannah to hold seeming dualities in suspense, both at 100%, one doesn't compromise the other. His appreciation for Neil McCauley doesn't compromise one iota. His avidity as a hunter to, to, to take down Neil McCauley, both coexist. And... I hope you can hear when you hear someone like Michael Mann talking about this film, that he's talking about it in such a, such a deep way. You know, he's not talking about the mechanics of shooting the film or the crime, which he can do at great length. And there are, you know, he definitely discusses that, but what he's interested in is so philosophically human and intellectual and emotional in these characters. And really at this, at the center of it, he created iconic, indelible characters. And he created a lot of them in one film. And somehow, through casting and acting, and filmmaking and editing and all of that, he allowed all of those people to coexist without it being a Robert De Niro film, without it being an Al Pacino film. And those two powerful performances, and we'll talk more about that in a second, but I mean, for those two to coexist in a film, the balance of that uh, requires a great deal of effort from everyone. And I think that is how this came to life in such an incredible way. Here's Art Linson talking a little bit about the casting. Michael's strengths are the fact that in this particular adaptation of his own material, it had depth to the characters. And it's the depth that makes it a classic, not the precise, brilliant shooting and the, the quote style. I'm not saying style's not part of it, but it's certainly in my place is in second position to the content. And, and I think the content comes from the writing and the content comes from the performances. Every aspect of this the is, story. This is, I think, no Michael Mann's daughter, who's a second small, assistant director. had to be really authentic, which meant that the actors portraying those aspects of the story had to be authentically really incredible actors. The casting process didn't even 
It didn't Mrs. Bonnie finish. Timmerman. He was shooting the movie and we were still casting. As a matter of fact, it went on for a long time in a good way because we, we get some very interesting characters. I didn't know John if I wanted to do it right away. And I, and I talked to Michael. I said, Michael, you know, this character is very specific. And I think there are guys walking around that you could get to be very authentic for this character. We said, yeah, but John, you know, then we wouldn't get a chance to work together. That was such a nice compliment to me, you know, that he wanted to work with me. And with that said, I, I said I'd throw in and do it with him, you know. So this casting process is, is really what makes the film. I mean, go through the whole cast. <laughs> it's just actors, actors, right? Actually good actors, not just movie stars. You know, De Niro, Pacino, of course. But when I say De Niro, Pacino, of course, it also occurs to me recently doing things like Deer Hunter and De Palma films, um, thinking about The Godfather, Pacino, you know, I realize like, yes, these guys have every, they're in the 1% of most successful screen actors or actors. They can work as much or as little as they like. They, they generally can get good material, not that they always do. But it also occurs to me that it's become easy to sort of dismiss De Niro just by like, it's Robert De Niro. Of course, he's great. And when we think that and we're right, of course, he's great. It also, for me at least, has prevented me from kind of really stopping down and really looking at what he's doing in some of these roles, particularly the role here in Neil McCauley, the role in The Deer Hunter. When you when you read all the stuff behind the scenes and you, you read about what he put into becoming these characters. It is so impressive. And I've talked about this before on the pod that particularly with directors, auteur directors, writer directors, you can feel sometimes a weariness that they put in all this work. And and I wonder if this is part of the De Niro thing where, you know, you have this trope of like, oh, he just makes these movies now that are not very good for money. Um, and And maybe, and that is true. Like he does a lot of that work. But I wonder if having put so much of yourself into so many things for so long, at the end of the day, you just say, I can't do that anymore. Like, I can't give of myself that much for a movie. You know, I've done that. I've, I have this body of work that will last forever. Filmic performances that will last forever. Now I want to enjoy my life. I want to enjoy my family. I want to be able to act and be on movie sets, but I don't want to have to rip my heart out. Uh, every day for six months in order to capture something on screen. I've done that. And now I want to work in a little bit of a different way. I don't know. That's speculation. But what's the opportunity to rewatch Heat is an opportunity to watch a master emotional technician in De Niro and in Al Pacino. Intelligent actors, perfectly cast with incredibly rich characters to explore and it utilizes the best of their abilities. And of course, famously, they're on screen together for the first time uh, because that was not, that was a big, that was a big selling point of heat at the time was that even though they were in Godfather 2 together, you know, they didn't share any screen time. So uh, we'll talk about that in a second too. But De Niro, Pacino, like let's, let's also remember, I read about this recently. Who said, oh, I think it was someone writing about um, Severance. And they were talking about Chris Walken and Severance. And they said in a review, 
it's a great opportunity to remember that Chris Walken is a fantastic actor, not just this pop culture thing in quotes, Chris Walken, all the impersonations, the impressions that people do. It's easy to forget with these long careers sometimes that the work, if you look at it, is among the best representative work you're ever going to see on screen done by an actor. And particularly at this point in their life, at this point in their career, De Niro and Pacino have so much experience, so much knowledge. They're such masters of the craft of film acting. And it's on display in the film. Val Kilmer. I mean, Val Kilmer is so good as Chris Scheherlis. And Chris Scheherlis is the polar opposite of the Neil Macaulay character. So Neil Macaulay is the guy who's famously like, you can't have anything in your life. If you want to pull scores, you got to be able to walk out on your whole life in 30 seconds flat, never turn around, never look back. Everything that Neil Macaulay does is thought out. It's precise. It's ruthlessly efficient. He doesn't do anything just because he feels like it. Chris Scheherlis is presented to us. He's kind of the complete opposite. He's a mess. He's all immediacy. He's the lack of thinking anything through. But he loves and is loved as a result. His messy uh, realism is how he survives. He survives heat. Neil does not. Neil cannot adapt. Chris's whole life is having to adapt on the fly. Neil tries to change, picks the worst time to try and change, and gets killed. If he doesn't go back to try and take care of Wayne Grow, then he and Edie are home free after the heist. And they live happily ever after, presumably. So Val Kilmer, who again, in his time, you know, was um, known for being difficult, uh, known for all of the actorly tirades and uh, difficult, you know, being difficult to work with and deal with. But he's having this moment now post Top Gun Maverick, where given his throat cancer and the fact that he, he too has this long filmic career and has been so great in so many movies. You know, now he's having this valedictory kind of uh, final run through where we're, we're super appreciative of him. But I, I, I too, watching it this time was reminded again, like, okay, the thing that made Val Kilmer a star is that he's really good as an actor. And as Chris Scheherlis, he's, he's phenomenal. He does this thing in the film. And if you watch it, I want you to watch for this. Um, even though, as I just said, he's all immediacy, he's a lack of thinking things through. There's a little tick that Kilmer does. I don't know if it's conscious or not, but when, um, De Niro asks him something or he's about to speak, he, he takes a beat and you can see his mind working and then he answers. I don't know if that's a, a choice, uh, or like an actor remembering his line. I'm not sure, but it really works, uh, to differentiate the character from Neil. Michael Madsen, another actor with like, you could you could fill up um, a six part e television documentary about all of the personal difficulties and troubles that Michael, uh, not Michael Madsen. What am I talking about, Michael Madsen? Jeez, how could you get that wrong? Um, <laughs> what's his name? Tom. 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 Oh my God. Tom Sizemore. Am I saying Michael Madsen? How long did I say Michael Madsen in the beginning? Did I say that earlier? I hope I didn't. Okay. Yeah. Michael Madsen, he too has the, the file of difficulties, whatever. But Tom Sizemore has the real file. I mean, we're talking Heidi Fleiss. We're talking all kinds of crazy shit. Um, and I'm not sure he's totally out of that. I hope for his sake that he is. But 
uh, Tom Sizemore is, again, in Heat, one of those actors who you're going to look at and you can remember that the reason you know the words Tom Sizemore is that this guy could act. He could really embody effortlessly, as he does here, the, the follower like the great scene when Neil says, you know, hey, we're going to pull this job. It's worth the stretch for me. It's dangerous. We have heat on us. So this time you all have to make your own choices as to whether or not you want to go through with this. And he goes through the crew one by one. And Val Kilmer needs the money. So he says yes. And then Michael Chirito, who's played by Tom Sizemore, he doesn't, he's used to just doing whatever Neil says to do. But Neil doesn't let him do that this time. He says, not this time. You've got money, you've got your wife, you have investments, you have real estate, you should cut free from this. Uh, And then, of course, the iconic Sizemore, Michael Chirito line. (laughs) Well, you know, for me, the action is the juice. I'm in. For me, the action is the juice. I'm in. And then Trejo's like, yeah, man, of course. So, These guys are also different from each other, but each person is so fully formed in a character role that it just creates this this playground where I think they all felt like they could really be these characters. And because of the realism that Michael Mann approaches everything with and the locations, which we'll talk about the architecture of this in a moment, because that's a really big, important part of the film too, Trejo... Totally fits in like the pro that he is too. Dennis Haysbert, um, I mentioned that, you know, so Bud Court, of course, from Harold and Maude, which we'd also done on the pod. This was kind of like one of the few roles that Bud Court had done. Uh, I'm not sure the backstory of how Michael Mann got him into this film. I want to say, I think it somehow had something to do. I don't know if Art Linson had anything to do with Harold and Maude, but um, if you if you saw Harold and Maude, you know, you would not know that the diner manager was Bud Court, the floppy-haired, innocent youth of Harold and Maude, uh, because this embittered, slick-backed hair, uh, evil motherfucker, as Dennis Haysbert's character calls him, uh, is such a far cry from that, but so brilliantly cast. Again, here's here's this scene where, uh, again, I think Michael Mann does such a great job from his previous interest in working. He He spent some time uh, interviewing convicts and and uh, shooting the Jericho Mile at Folsom Prison, and so he had he had had a lot of experience talking with convicts and ex-convicts, and the choices that they're presented with, or the lack of choices that they're presented with, uh, the fact that our society does not do a great job providing any kind of a pathway towards rehabilitation, and that the the choices that people are eventually faced with to return to a life of criminality are, of course. Difficult, if not impossible, to resist. So when Dennis Haysbert's character shows up after this brilliant scene with Kim Staunton as Lillian, his girlfriend, in the parking lot where he's visibly nervous, he's afraid, he doesn't know if he can do this work. Can he Can he reintegrate into this small aspect of society, this crummy diner that his parole officer told him to show up for, which is, of course, part of a scam because the 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 guy gets 25% of his pay. And and the Bud Court character says, you know, ask your parole officer if you got a problem with it, basically implying that he's in on it too. So the system is rigged against these guys and their their options are presented as limited. 
Bud Court has an amazing scene here, as does Dennis Haysbert. Hey, Mr. Lanko, I'm down breathing. Pearson, my parole officer, told me to come by here since you had a job for me. So you're familiar with this kind of operation, huh? Yeah, man, I'm a great grill man. Good, good for you. Okay, right there. Good, good for you. That's the first indication that this guy's a dick. <laughs> and and we know from seeing Breeden in the car with Lillian that he's already nervous and he wants this to go well. He's hoping this is a chance for him. Here you'll mop out the toilets, hit the dishwasher, bus tables, and empty the garbage too. Give me a hard time. I'll report you loaded, drunk, or stealing, and I will violate you back so fast you have a spoon. 25% of your take-home kicks back to me. Rules of the game. Paul Grierson, check it out. Change in the back. And again, just because Dennis Haysbert is such a freaking phenomenal actor and the way that Michael Mann cuts this scene is so brilliant because after Bud Court tells him how it is, he cut Michael Mann cuts to a single shot of Haysbert's face. And the look that he gives is this confirmation that I knew it would be this way. I hoped it wouldn't, but it is. And... This life outside of prison is its own kind of prison. I got to deal with this warden, this guard, just like I had to deal with wardens and guards in prison. So even though I'm free, am I really free? And all of this is, I'm, I'm telling you, watch the film. All of this is manifested and contained in three cuts in this scene. And the dedication that Bud Court has to being the asshole and the dedication that Dennis Haysbert has to bringing Breed into life as a fully formed person, not just a guy that Neil picks up at a diner to drive a getaway car, which is that's all the role is on paper. But Breeden is such an important part of the infrastructure of what the film is all about, because whereas Neil is this hardened ex-con who's already learned those lessons and has organized his life accordingly, Breeden represents the guy who made some mistakes, but is trying to do the right thing. He has this relationship that's a foundation you can feel is a strong one. And from that, you can build a life. But because, again, he goes back to make that fateful choice, he never gets that opportunity. And Lillian, Kim Staunton, again, like every single part in this film, when you watch the movie, there's only one person who's going to stand out to you, but it's not going to be it stand out to you in sort of a bad way. It's not going to be Kim Staunton, who is, again, just this. Here's an actor you've probably not heard of. I looked at her IMDb page. I don't think she has a, a huge, huge career of notable roles. But my God, she should, because in just two scenes, she's absolutely stunning. Absolutely stunning. Hey, it's Lily. This scene is when he's Let's drunk go, after working for Bud Court. I met the manager. Is that the boss? Get time for what that motherfucker does every day. Baby, can you just handle it till we find you something new? Can you do that? In a hard time in a minute that I cannot handle. What you hanging with me for, Lily? Because I'm proud of you. <laughs> you proud of me? Mm -hmm. 
just a phenomenal scene. I mean, a phenomenal scene between two phenomenal actors that, again, in this crime epic is an intimate moment of absolutely like emotionally naked, revealing truth between these two characters. In that one scene, which is, I just played you, I don't know, a minute of it, maybe not even. In that one scene, you see on Dennis Haysbert's face the, the fact that he doesn't believe in himself. So if she believes in him, he, he looks at her almost like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> you don't understand what's going on here. But the way she looks at him, the way she's in a step-by-step process, right? But he's only in the immediacy of the moment. She's saying, can you just hold on till we can find something better? Can you just do that? And he can't. He can't because he's been cultured that way in prison. He doesn't have the tools. He doesn't have the skills. He doesn't have the abilities. But this is the pathos. This is the emotion of heat, okay? If you think it's just a shoot 'em up crime epic, you're not watching these scenes and really uh, appreciating the depth that everybody involved went to to bring them to life. So I think that's extraordinary. Talking more about, I'm, I'm really interested in talking about the female characters. Amy, Amy Brenneman, who I think I, I don't know if I mentioned this on the pod, but I recently recently watched. I admit I only watched, I think, four episodes of uh, The Old Man, which is on FX with Jeff Bridges. The first two episodes of which I thought were excellent, maybe the first three, but then it kind of lost me. But one of the things that did not lose me was this phenomenal performance by Amy Brenneman, who is a woman who falls for the Jeff Bridges character. And it's, of course, reminds me of Edie because... You know, in in Heat, she falls for Neil McCauley, who is so emotionally unavailable. Um, but she's so vulnerable. She's representative of this this loneliness of Los Angeles life that you can be amidst the the beauty of the twinkling lights at night and in these amazing bookstores or restaurants. But she's a lonely person in a lonely town, and. She takes the risk to try and talk with Neil because she recognizes him from the bookstore. And he, of course, is so closed and so guarded that he can't even he can't even deal with her. So and Amy Brenneman was very funny is um, she tells a story about sort of reading the script and just saying, no, like this is filled with so much violence. I don't want to represent any of this. I don't want to be a part of this. I don't want to put this into the world. I don't get it. And this is her talking a little bit about how she found... Amy, let me start with you. The character. She's, character. she's being interviewed uh, by Christopher Nolan. I'm curious as to the, the sense of damage that the character has. Someone is very lonely. Loneliness almost referred to in the film as if it's a disease or a condition, something that Bob's character immediately denies having. Alone but not lonely. Uh, is that... Something that was just inherently in the, the script for you, because I think in the performance there's a wonderful sense of that that damage there. Yeah, I mean, I looked at the script. I thought she must be pretty fucked up. <laughs> um, but I, one of, I will always remember a, a, a really important moment, um, it, truly, as an actor, where I, you know, had had very much thought along those lines, and I thought, well, she's you know, probably got a little damage, you know, got a little daddy stuff, got a little incest, got a little, I don't know, like you know. Um, 
why would she, you know, I mean, not that you're not fabulous. <laughs> She's pointing to De Niro. I mean, at the beginning, you know, <laughs> um, but I remember saying to Michael and Michael, that's either the research thing. He said, just tell me everything you're thinking about. And I said some of these things and, and I will always remember this. And Michael looked right at me and he said, uh, no, she just falls in love with him. And it was really a beautiful moment. And, you know, I thought, um, you know, as most of us here, I was a huge fan of Last of the Mohicans. And I was like, well, anything this guy, it was a surrender and a sort of letting go into, um, into a romanticism and a mythic. And I thought, oh, I am, I am the aspirational hope, you know, of, of a person like Bob. And I'm a person in my own right. But I, I sort of let go of a certain psychological dissecting and really into the hands of, of the whole thing. And, um, and I also, yeah, it's funny watching that scene because, you know, one of the appeals about Edie is she's so unguarded. I mean, she's really, you know, and, and, and you sort of defend against that idea of loneliness. She's like, no, I can admit that, you know, people need connection. So um, I think that was probably how she was designed. I mean, it, it's, <laughs> this is just um, like eat this stuff up because this is an incredible panel, by the way, that was done. You can watch this on YouTube. It's on the Oscars channel. Uh, it's Christopher Nolan. I mean, is there is there a better uh, interviewer for the entire cast who is who are on stage here? Uh, with maybe a couple of exceptions, including Michael Mann, De Niro, Pacino, Diane Venora, uh, Val Kilmer. They're all in the same. He's just asking them such smart questions about it. And I thought that the stuff about the characterizations was really funny. I'm going to make the argument that these female characters are super important. What's funny is I'm not going to play this clip here, but after Christopher Nolan finishes that conversation with Amy Brenneman, uh, he asks a similar thing of of Diane Venora about how she uh, how she found her way to play Justine. And being a real theater actor, um, Diane Venora just gives this incredible answer. I guess I have to play it because it's just too good. Let me just see if I can play a little bit. Resonance, who this guy is and what he's doing and what's going on on his head. And how did you, how did you juggle that? How did you balance that? I just played it. Fair enough. I mean, it's a completely different type of answer than Amy Brenneman gave, which is a very open and vulnerable answer. I love that Diane Venora's answer is, I just played it. She's a pro. She's an actor. You gave me a role. I just played it. I love her. She's phenomenal. She's also in The Insider, which is one of my other favorite Michael Mann films, where she plays Russell Crowe's not understanding wife. Um, but she's incredible as Justine in this film. She's, I think, one of our most underrated actors. She's a full body actor. Her facial reactions are phenomenal. Um, she has such control of her physical being. And for her to have that answer, I think, is so wonderfully perfect. I just played it. Ashley Judd is phenomenal. She did a lot of work talking to women who are married to men who are in prison. She talks about this in some of the making of featurettes. And... She, like Amy Brenneman and like maybe less like Diane Venora, had some issues about like, well, why, why would these women be with these men? I don't get it. Um, but through talking with these women who had either married men in prison or had been in relationships with men who ended up in prison, you know, she found her way to a certain truth with Charlene that I think is uh, very evident on screen in her scenes with Val Kilmer 
they all have these incredibly emotionally resonant scenes. And what they're going through is always front and center in those scenes. It's not just what the man is going through. So when you have Justine in dialogue with Vincent Hanna at the bar and it's the sifting through the detritus scene and he's, you know, on the edge, keeps me sharp where I got to be, you know, it's as much, we're as moved as much by what she is going through as we are kind of like jazzed and turned on by looking at Pacino doing Vincent Hanna. Same thing with, with Diane, same thing with um, Ashley Judd and, 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 um, and Val Kilmer. Like the emotion on her face in the last scene that she has where she gives him the uh, casino sign for no, and he realizes that he's been set up and he escapes. Look at the emotion on her face. I mean, look at the choices that she made that ended up where they did. She has this young son and what is her future? Uh, But she is able to play the cop's in order to get away in a way she's adaptable in the way that Chris Harris is and that Neil ultimately wasn't John Voight, uh, phenomenal man says that John Voight's basically playing a guy named Eddie Bunker, who was an ex con. He was a bank robber. He is one of those ex con bank robbers who kind of transitioned to being a writer. And he wrote screenplays and acted in films he, uh, the Dennis, um, not Dennis, Dustin Hoffman film Straight Time uh, was adapted from a book that he wrote called No Beast So Fierce, which Michael Mann says is the best book written about the criminal life from someone who was really there. He also, I think, co-wrote a film someone actually just mentioned to me on Instagram that I should check out. And I sort of was dismissive of it because it looked like just sort of a schlocky 80s action flick, but he co-wrote Runaway Train, which is an Andre Konchalovsky film, which also stars John Voight. Um, but I've heard it's actually really interesting and good, and it's based upon an idea uh, by Akira Kurosawa. It's like all kinds of weird, crazy shit going on with Runaway Train, so I definitely have to watch that because it sounds kind of batshit crazy in a good way. And a movie I really like, Animal Factory, uh, which Edward Furlong was in, and that has one of the all-time greatest cameos in film history by Mickey Rourke. If you haven't seen Animal Factory... I think it's directed by Steve Buscemi. I think um, uh, Willem Dafoe is in it. And it's a good movie. It's a small movie. It's a prison movie, but it's a good one. If you haven't seen it, check out Animal Factory. Anyway, that was also written by Eddie Bunker. And that's who John Voight is playing in the character of Nate, who is kind of the bar owner and the fixer, who is an intermediary and also an ex-con. And... um, his skin is very is very unique in the film. I think I read somewhere that in the conception for the character is that, I don't know whether this is a John Voight thing or not, but that this character had been in the hole. He had been in solitary confinement for so long and had not seen the sun that when he got out of prison, he just stared at the sun and he burned his face. And so that's why he has these scars. I'm not sure if that's true, but man, John Voight, as you've never seen him, totally deep in character here. Bud Court, as I've said, uh, Tone Loke. How great is Tone Loke in Heat in one scene in a bar with Vincent Hanna? Completely believable. Completely a fully realized character. Um, William Fickner as Van Zant. He is so good. He so perfectly represents the effortlessly entitled 
wealthy Los Angeles investment class person in this bullshit house um, who thinks he's a gangster and then meets a real one and pays the price. Kevin Gage as Wayne Grow. Watching this again, I think Wayne Grow is one of the most badass motherfuckers ever to be put on film. Kevin Gage just brought to life this monster. Someone else on Instagram just it just messaged me and said that they heard Michael Mann talk about Wayne Grow as a virus, that if he gets out, he just kills everything. And that's what he does in the movie. On and on and on. I mean, you could just keep going to the guy who sells Val Kilmer's character explosives in the very beginning of the film. This is a guy who just like fills out a piece of paper, takes a look at Val Kilmer's fake driver's license. I mean, that guy is so perfectly cast and manages to embody sort of a, you're probably not who you say you are, but I'm going to let it go anyway. Uh, So just on and on, like the casting and the depth of the characters is phenomenal, except for one person. And you probably have guessed who it is by now. It's Henry Rollins, who plays Van Zant's kind of thug. It's effective casting, I guess, but he does not have anywhere near the chops that anyone else in the film has, including many of the non-professional actors, to pull off even just the few things that he has to pull off. So he doesn't get in the way of anything. But as I watched it, I just thought thought he's this role would have been better served maybe by someone who could act. Sorry, Henry. Um, anyway, the cast is phenomenal. And I think one of the real joys of, of enjoying the film is is stopping down to appreciate each and every character, each and every actor, and, and really noting what they're doing. Now, the architecture is uh, a big thing. Now, you know, I'm a fan of a film called Los Angeles Plays Itself, which takes a very kind of uh, view askance of the way that something called L.A., in quotes, is portrayed in films and how some of the wonderful modern architecture of Los Angeles has been reduced to sort of code for bad guy lives here. Um, And... And some of the real places that real Angelinos live and work um, have been ghettoized on screen. But the architecture and the use of locations in Heat is another piece of superlative filmmaking here because the location manager, Michael Mann, the production designer, they found, and I think Mann instructed them to find, like, I want to see real Los Angeles. I want to see a Los Angeles that's never been seen on screen before. And so these locations and everyone's home, everyone, I heard some person say, every character has their own architecture. So if you think about where Neil Macaulay lives in this glass Malibu, you know, uh, antiseptic glass uh, sounds, the sound of a gun reverberating in this empty room, you look at where uh, Chris and Charlene, Charlene live and it's there, it's much more homey and lived in. Um, you look at where Vincent goes in this kind of shanty town with someone riding a horse. And it's a series of these huts that people are living in and sort of illegal businesses. These are all real locations that were locate, that were found. The Koreatown nightclub scene with, the tone, with Tone Loke. All of these places, all of the way that Los Angeles is represented on film is really of an interesting piece with a documentary like Los Angeles Plays itself, which I highly recommend if you haven't seen it. 
So that's another special aspect of the film. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the shootout because I think that's it is an important part of the film. And it is such a iconic piece of filmmaking. It is reported that Val Kilmer's reloading scene in real time. And in other words, there are no cuts when he he empties his automatic assault rifle and then drops down behind the car, uh, ejects his cartridge, his mag and puts in a new one and then resumes firing that that's taught at uh, Fort Bragg to aspiring soldiers who the instructors say, if you can't do this as well as this actor did it in a movie in real time, you have no business being in this man's army. I don't know if that's true, but it's a great story. So the bank robbery, the music that's used, the tension that's built, uh, all reflected in the preparation for the film. Man actually had the actors case a bank. <laughs> he had them go in in disguise and observe bank operations unbeknownst to the bank management so that when they did go in, this was something that they were familiar with. So all this preparation, I mean, they did extensive firearms training so that they could realistically portray a better caliber of militaristic preparation than the police. And one of the uh, advisors on the film says that one of the things that Mann fixated on was that he told Michael Mann that you know, police forces like the LAPD are so used to being the overwhelming force in any situation they find themselves in that when they are subjected to those rare moments where they're faced with an opponent who has superior tactics or superior firepower, they actually don't do well in those situations because they're they just they're never used to being anything other than the overwhelming force. So that's the underpinning of the choreography in the shootout scene at the bank, which is that these guys are better trained than the cops. They have better technique and they are ruthlessly disciplined. And so when they're pinned down and they're trying to escape, they do what they have to do. Um, but really what makes the scene is the audio and the sound, the, the gunfire. You've never heard gunfire on screen like you hear in the bank robbery shootout. And I was always curious about it. And I was so glad to hear sound mixer Chris Jenkins talk a little bit about this. Good. Gunfire downtown was truly horrifying sounding. And because of the skyscrapers everywhere, it was just deafening. And it would hang in the sky for maybe like eight or 10 seconds. We used 800 to 1,000 rounds. This is the assistant tank. director. When we had the cops and our criminals going at each other, I mean, it was quite an amazing sound. So you can hear there what Chris Jenkins is talking about. This is this is behind the scenes B-roll footage of them filming the scene. But you can hear that because they're surrounded on all sides by these giant Los Angeles glass towers, that the echoes were so deafening and that this that the, the sound of the gunfire live on the set was something that no one who was there has ever been able to, to forget. In what we do, we replace everything. In movies, every sound you hear is there for a reason. So we were mixing in three stages simultaneously. And the pre-dubs of all the effects for that reel with all the gunshots came to the stage. And Michael said, that's not the gunshot. And everybody was in shock. He said, how can you not, what don't you like about it? And I knew what he didn't like about it because I was on location was that it was horrifying sounding. So the big gun shootout that you hear in the movie is all production sound. 
nothing artificial could could uh, come close to delivering the the fear of the sound that the full load made moving moving through those automatic weapons and the way the sound ricocheted off the walls of the buildings of an empty downtown. So I mean, again, it's just this. It's it's Michael Mann having the confidence and the ability to say, no, we're not going to do what every film always does, which is, of course, we have to replace gunfire audio with sound effects because that's what we do. But using the real sound captured on location, which wasn't intended to be used, but because that had a realism to it that still to this day you can feel. If you watch that scene today, it feels shockingly real and you will not release a breath until the scene is concluded. The other thing is the the music in Heat uh, is, as always in a Michael Mann film, it's such a integral part of everything that's going on. There's score. There is uh, There are artists whose music is used. It's not any one thing. And when he was making Thief, we talked about this in the Thief episode. You know, it's a Chicago set crime film. So he originally, he's a huge fan of Chicago blues. He really wanted to have it scored with like this Chicago blues score. Then he totally went in a different direction and used this like electronica score uh, by Tangerine Dream that was so different at the time than anything that had ever been done before. And it works so well. And unlike, say, something like Vangelis's Chariots of Fire theme, it doesn't it's not dated now when you watch the film. It still somehow feels of a piece with the film because the film is set in an era where you would expect, I guess, that type of instrumentation as opposed to. Chariots of Fire, which is like not set in a time where you would have Vangelis instrumental synthesizer music. But the music is so good that it was only until this viewing and watching the materials that I that I learned that this song, which is used uh, during the shootout between Vince and Hannah and Neil McCauley at the airport, uh, is so perfect for the scene that I just presumed it was part of Elliot Goldenthal's score. Um, but it's not. It's it's Moby. <laughs> it's it's Moby's song, God Moving Over the Face of the Waters. And it's so brilliantly used. And it contains everything we've been talking about here. These rising emotional chords these are chords about the gray areas of life they're about the emotional choices they're about the fact that choices people have made have led them to demises which didn't have to happen and even though it wasn't composed for the film it's absolutely right and it contains the DNA of the movie and, and the way that songs and music, you know, I've talked in the past about the podcast, how it can be a cheat sometimes that directors can use emotional music to make you feel something. But that's not what this is. You know, this is a, a, a pairing between a film and things that are going on in a look of a film. And the look of this film is just phenomenal. I mean, it's unbelievable. The colors, the saturation, the diffusion of light, the 
the way in which uh, real location lights are used at the airport. Everything. It's just masterfully done. And I could talk about it for many, many hours, which is why I've never really set out to talk about it. I'm not even doing it complete justice here in the sense that there's just so much that you could uh, continue to talk more and more about. But I've already rattled on for an hour and nine minutes and nine seconds. I think that's probably enough for anyone who who appreciates the film and loves it as I do. I hope it gets you a little stoked to give it one more watch and one more bit of appreciation. The one thing I will end on is that Michael Mann and the crime writer Meg Gardner recently released Heat 2, which is a novel which uses, it tells you the backstory, and it also picks up after where the film lets off with Chris Chehalis and uh, some of the other characters, Vincent Hanna, and it goes back to Chicago, and it, and, it, and it shows you some of the roots of Vincent Hanna and Neil McCauley. Um, and it's, it's great. I, I devoured it. I mean, I couldn't get enough of it. Um, it's really true to the film. It's kind of fan service in the way that Quentin Tarantino's novelization of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood uh, is. But you're, you're, you're there for it. Like, the way that they introduce things and lines that you love from the film and use them in new ways. Um, it deepens the characters. You get to learn a little bit more of the backstory and you learn more about why Vincent Hanna and Neil McCauley would have been friends in real life because they have very similar experiences in dealing with the Chicago police department and other things in their lives. Now I've read that this is going to become something. It, it's either going to be a feature film, which I hope, uh, or perhaps it would be some sort of a high-end limited series. I don't know. I know that Michael Mann right now is filming the Enzo Ferrari film uh, in Italy with Adam Driver. And if that is a return to form for Michael Mann as a director, and that is a film that is a hit, quote-unquote, then perhaps uh, Heat 2, which I believe is number one on the New York Times fiction bestseller list, by the way, so appreciation for heat is not a uh, niche business, apparently. It's pretty mainstream. So I think this bodes well. I think that it would be interesting to revisit the origin stories of these characters. I don't think we would be able to see De Niro and Pacino per se, uh, because the, well, De, De Niro, Neil McCauley is dead. So there's really nothing to see him unless we go back to his early life in Chicago, in which case he can't really be played by, by Robert De Niro. So... I'm not sure how they're going to do that, but it will be interesting. And it's a really good read. I really, really recommend it. I'm really enjoying this moment where there are these novelizations of films like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood or Heat or Heat 2 that that allow you to experience things in a different way. So anyway, had to fanboy out over Heat. I know that many of you who listen to this podcast feel the same way. So thank you for indulging me. If you're not a fan of Heat, I hope I've given you at least some reason to check it out. Uh, even if you're not, a, if you don't think you're a fan of the genre, Watch it for the acting. I mean, if you're a fan of acting, a fan of movies, filmmaking, the composition of the scenes is stunning. The actors are amazing. And I think you'll really enjoy it. So anyway, thank you very much for listening. And I will talk to you next time on the Full Cast and Crew podcast. Podcast.